Uh, this morning, uh, I am preaching from uh, the Gospel of John, and because um, concerns I have about uh, attitudes toward worship, uh, not simply here, uh, but I think throughout the country, that uh, there just seems to be what Charles was talking about, just a lack of understanding of what we're doing when we come to worship and the greatness of our God and the majesty of our God. And it's no small thing that we do. So it's the account of Jesus meeting with the woman at the well. And the focus is going to be on the worship as Christ brings her to that after he talks about her sin and uh, how we are to worship our great God and what a privilege it is to worship our God. Uh, Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? We'll start our reading at verse 7 and read down through Let's hear the word of the Lord. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus asked her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The one said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not have to be thirsty or come here to drink water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text, and pray for yourselves, please. And I will lead us in a moment. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture that has been recorded for us by John. We thank you that we learn of our Christ, our Lord's compassion, 
of his understanding of the deep things of God, of his message to the world, a message of hope. And Lord God, what he says to us about worship. And pray that you would be with me as I preach this text and pray that you would be with the congregation. Lord, we ask you to give us your grace that I might preach with unction and power and the urges of your Holy Spirit. And, oh, God, that your people may hear. We do ask if any are under sin that you would bring conviction and repentance. If any are outside of faith, we ask that you would bring salvation. Here as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What's the most important meeting in the church? Is it Sunday school? No. Uh, Sunday school is not mentioned in the scriptures. It's a good thing to go. And I wish we had 100% attendance. Is it Wednesday night Bible study, midweek Bible study? No. And that's not ordered either, nor is it found anywhere in Scripture that we are commanded to meet together on Wednesday nights and have a prayer time. What about the community groups or small groups? Is that the most important meeting that you have? No. They're important. They're good. If you're not in one, I would recommend you to get in one. But it's not the most important meeting that we have as Christians. We're not commanded to do that. The one that we are commanded to do is this one, Lord's Day Worship. It is something that we are to do, and we are to do faithfully. If you would let me read to you the Westminster Confession, Chapter 21, Article 7. It is the law of nature that, in general, a due portion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So, in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment of binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day. And this is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian's Sabbath. So given that this day is required, worship is required on this day, and given that the Bible gives it so much emphasis, as we come to this day, it's important that we ask ourselves, what is our mindset? What is our attitude? As Charles read a moment ago, how much have we been preparing to come in here on this day? How much have we been praying about what is going to happen on this day? Because it is of the utmost importance that we come in a way that is appropriate before the Lord. And so often we don't. Are you one who simply tips your hat to God on Sunday worship? And by that I mean that you come in here and you do your duty and you leave and you have nothing else to do with God for the week until you come back the next Lord's Day. You do your duty, you tip your hat. Are you one who comes in and your heart and mind are simply somewhere else? You're worried about business, you're worried about this, you're worried about that, and you can't focus. No, you're not uh, ready, really, to come there. Uh, have you come in holding a grudge and nursing a grudge against someone in the congregation? That's not pleasing to the Lord, and that's going to uh, prevent you from worshiping as you should, as you think about that, and as it is something that is continually in your mind. Well, Jesus, as he talks to this woman in this text, I love this text, tells us, as he instructs her, uh, about the importance of worship and how we worship our God. And as he talked to her, because the scripture has perpetual authority, and he teaches us as well. I would have us to see this morning uh, 
that because God desires his people to come to him in sincerity and faithfulness and is not interested in mechanical worship, as believers, we must come before him prepared with sincere hearts to worship the God that we love. And three things this morning, the confrontation of Christ, the clarification of Christ, and the confession of Christ. And the first thing then, the confrontation of Christ. Here the context. Jesus is traveling to Galilee. He stops in Samaria. Most Jews would not do that. They would cross the Jordan twice in order to avoid going into Samaria. Uh, the Samaritans uh, were not true Jews. They were interbred, if you let me put it that way, with the Assyrians. When the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, they intermarried with them. And so they even had a temple in a different place, which we'll see that in a moment. But as we look at this, the events that took place here are arranged by God. He'd been traveling for several hours. He's thirsty. He's hot. He's tired. And so he sits down on this well and encounters this woman again. This is no accident. There are no accidents with God. Not one. You will notice that Jesus controls the conversation as he talks with this woman. And Jesus is breaking social mores by talking to her. A man was not to speak to a woman in public unless it was his wife. And no one was supposed to speak. No Jew was really supposed to speak to a Samaritan. They despised the Samaritans. So your Christ comes and he sits down and he begins to talk to her. Uh, in the meeting, in the dialogue as he goes through, he presents to this woman spiritual truths. He's, the first thing he does is begin to talk about spiritual truths. When he began, he asks her if he could have some water. He goes from that to talk about uh, the living water that he has. And uh, the encounter with Jesus is something that is going to change her life forever. In the bold dialogue, he begins this conversation, may I have a drink? No one recognizes Jesus is breaking protocol. She asked him, how is it that you being a Jew and how is it being a woman, you ask me for a drink? How is it that you do that? Well, he turns the conversation into spiritual matters. If you knew the gift of God and you knew who it was asking you for a drink, you ask me and I would give you living water. No, what he's talking about there is uh, eternal life. Uh, using as an illustration the living water that would bubble up in us and never dry, never run dry, never go away, eternal life. And it reminds me of the text uh, when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You need to look no further. You need to go nowhere else. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Are you tired of feeling guilty of your sins? Are you tired of trying to make yourself right with God? Are you tired of having a conscience afflicted? Then come to me and lean upon me. That's not to say we should never have an afflicted conscience. We should at times have an afflicted conscience. But we leave it at the cross and learn from it and strive with all our energy to be obedient before the Lord. So Christ, in talking to her, whoever has this water will never thirst again. This sounds good to the woman. I'd like this water. I'd like to have a drink and never have to drink again. I'd like not to have to come back down to this well. Let me have some of this water that you talk about. And then Jesus begins to touch your life in a very personal area. It needed to be dealt with. She was living in rebellion against God, and Jesus confronts her about it. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't. Matter of fact, you've had five. And the one you're living with now, you're not married to it. You have become so cynical about marriage that you decided to even do away with it. And Christ is forcing her 
to see herself as she truly is before the Lord. He's bringing her to the, he's the marvelous, beautiful, the way he does that. He, but he goes through this. He's forcing her to see herself as she truly is, as one who has offended God and needs Christ in her life. Let me read John Calvin to you. Those who are utterly careless and almost stupid must be deeply wounded by a conviction of sin. For such persons will regard the doctrine of Christ as a fable until being summoned to the judgment seat of God where they are compelled to dread a judge whom they have formerly despised. You cannot, no matter how hard you may want to, no matter how hard you may think you can, you cannot escape being responsible to God. He is the great judge, and we will all stand before him one day. J.C. Ryle said, Till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and their need for Christ, no real good is ever done to their souls. And then again, until a sinner sees himself as God sees him, he will continue condemned, trifling, and unmoved. So the confrontation of Jesus Christ as Christ is causing her to look into a mirror, if you will, and see herself as she truly is and bring her to a knowledge that the way she's living is wrong. Five marriages and now living with someone outside the bonds of marriage. Well, the clarification of Christ is the next thing that... Um, we will consider. In order to get out of this uncomfortable situation, she changes the subject. Let's talk about theology. That's what she's saying to him. Let's don't talk about me. Let's talk about you. I perceive you're a prophet. You have to be a prophet. Because no one could tell me my life except a prophet. Well, tell me uh, as... Uh, you're a prophet. What's the proper place to worship? Here or in Jerusalem? And this just opens up the door. Uh, worship is universal phenomenon. Worship is a universal phenomenon. History reveals that throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, every civilization worships something. Everybody. Worship something. Many of the religions are rather perverse, as the worship of Baal and Canaan was a very perverse religion. But people by nature are religious. Everybody is. And why is that? It is because we bear the image of God. Let us make God in our image, we read in the scriptures. So we are religious because we bear God's image. And so the woman then wants to talk about worship. They worship over here in this temple on Mount Gerizim. They worship down in Jerusalem. So what is the best place and proper place to worship? What happened when the kingdom fell in 722 to the Assyrians? Again, they intermarried with them and they built a temple there. And they worship there at Mount Gerizim. And they still worship there to this day. This temple's not there anymore, but they still worship there. So they rejected some of the theology of uh, Jerusalem, of the Jews. They did not accept the prophets. They accepted the, the uh, Pentateuch. They did not accept the prophets. And so their religion then was not one that was biblical. So, which is the proper place to worship. And I love what Jesus says. And I love the way he puts it to her. Woman, believe me. He's not being rude. He's not being unkind. He wants her to pay attention. 
Because what he is saying here is absolutely essential for us to get and absolutely, absolutely essential for her to get as well. Her understanding of God is wrong. Her understanding of how to approach God is wrong. And Christ is going to correct that. He says this to her, a time is coming when there will be no worship in this temple or the temple in Jerusalem, and now is. So you misunderstand God cannot be anchored to one area. And so that he's over here, but he's not over here. That is unbiblical. Christ is teaching this woman this. So Jews have the message of salvation, he tells her. Uh, we have the message of salvation. We have the story of salvation. We have the, 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 uh, the means of salvation. And it is that the, uh, uh, the great God of all ages gave, uh, had a uh, covenant relationship with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. There was Moses. And it was these people that God entered into a very personal relationship, and he gave them laws. And those laws pointed to and spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gave them sacrifices. And those sacrifices pointed to and spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Samaria, they had polluted those things. So he says here, salvation is of the Jews. You're wrong. Salvation is of the Jews. And he brings it there now to consider the theology of the Jews, the doctrines that they used and they had as a part of their lives. True worship is not tied to a location. You remember when uh, Solomon dedicated his temple, he said, uh, this temple will not contain you. The highest heavens cannot contain you. It's interesting to think of this and how can we do it? God is infinite. He's at every place, at every moment, always, always, which is he outside the bonds and bounds of the universe. He has to be. He has to be. He is infinite. It's something to think about. And he's full of majesty. Our God uh, is a great God. And Christ here is going to explain him to this lady. He says here that those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? It means to worship in sincerity, to be sincere. That God is not concerned with sacrifices. God is not concerned with mindless worship. He's not concerned with perfunctory following after him. He's not concerned with those things. He's concerned that those who come to him come to him in sincerity. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit. In all sincerity. And also, he says here, they must worship him in truth. Doctrine matters. It matters what you believe about God. It's significant. Doctrine matters. If your doctrine's wrong, your faith is going to be wrong. If your doctrine's wrong, your understanding of God is going to be wrong. So doctrine is something that is essential. The laws of God are doctrine. The things that Christ teaches here about worship and God are doctrine. You must worship in spirits and worship in truth as well, not through types and shadows and sacrifices on an altar, but through faith in Christ. That's how they are to worship. And Jesus says that to her in just a moment. And a second reason he has to be worshipped in spirit and truth is that God is spirit. First, another fourth question to the Gnosis. Think of the fourth question to the Catechism. 
And what is God? God is a spirit. The first thing that it says there in the, question, in the answer, God is a spirit. And those who worship him, uh, inf- I'm sorry, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, justice, and truth. That's our God. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He fills all time and space. He says that those who come to him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is non-corporeal. If I may read this quote to you, this is one of the first fruits of religion and one of the sublimest ever presented to the mind of man. Almost all nations have had some idea of God as gross or material, but the Bible declares, the Bible declares that God is pure spirit. He does not dwell in temples, in places where he is contained. He is in all places at all times, everywhere, at every moment. And he is spirit. J.C. Ryle said the principle contained in these sentences can never be strongly can never be too strongly impressed upon professing Christians. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, he is not concerned with outward forms. He's not concerned with the formalities of exercising particular religious rites. He's concerned that we come before him in all sincerity and embracing Christ, who is the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So and we learn of Christ. We learn of God through the Holy Scriptures. The last thing is uh, gracious Savior's confession. The confession of Jesus. This woman is hearing things that are radical to her. She's hearing things that don't make sense to her. We've always worshipped in a temple. The Jews had their temple. We have our temple. We've always done it that way. Sacrifices were made there. We've always done it that way. And now you say, a day's coming, we will not do that. We won't use these temples. Well, she doesn't understand that. And Jesus is trying to bring her to an understanding that her thinking is wrong. It's interesting. This clearly teaches this woman was religious. She obviously was a religious person. She talks to him about the temple. She talks to him about worship. But she was by no means a believer. I doubt she prayed. I doubt she worshipped, but she was religious. In Sunday school this morning, Greg Poston said something like this, and I have it written down. It's a very dangerous thing to be religious and not be resting in Christ. It's a very dangerous thing to be religious and not resting in Christ, because what you're doing If you're religious but not resting in Christ, you're basing your hope upon something that you've done. Some work that you've done, some deed that you've done. It's a very dangerous place to be, and that's what Greg said this morning. Um, uh, If you do not take your faith seriously, if you're not sincere as your approach to God, if you are one who is just giving lip service to the gospel, you're in terrible danger before the Lord. But in a minute, we'll see the beauty of Christ here. Notice this grand response to her. She says, the Messiah is coming. He's going to tell us all these things. He's coming. And by the way, it's the people that worship in spirit and in truth. God desires them to worship him. He seeks those to worship him. Does that communicate to you? The way God wants us to be when we come to worship is sincere, is Focused on Christ is loving him, uh, not being one who is 
filled with self-righteousness, the one who is simply resting upon the Lord Jesus. As we come in, we are sincere that we really want to worship him and we really want to please him and we really want to know more about him. And so that's why we're here. And see, God knows the heart and it's those that come before him that are worshiping in spirit and in truth. He seeks those people to worship him. That's the two facts about that that are just amazing. The first thing is that he wants us to worship him at all. We're sinful people. It's amazing that he wants to have uh, intercourse with us and and interaction with us. It's amazing. The second thing is, amazing thing is, he accepts our worship. Not only does he want us to, he accepts our worship as well. And then Jesus, this great expression here, when she says the Messiah is coming, he's going to straighten out all this stuff for us. He's going to let us know where the right place to worship because he's coming He's the Messiah. And Jesus says this to her. The one who speaks to you. And he. I am. The Messiah. This is just a beautiful expression of the grace and kindness of Christ. He does not say to her. He does not tell her. You really can't talk to me. You really can't have anything to do with me. Uh, you have lived a life uh, that is absolutely contrary uh, to righteousness and holiness, and therefore I can have nothing to do with you, so you just need to go away. Just say that. She says, the Messiah is coming. We're looking forward to seeing him. Christ said, I'm here right in front of you. Yes. The great grace of our Lord Jesus is expressed so clearly in those words. I who speak to you am he. What an astonishing expression of grace Christ gives here to this woman who is a sinner. The most important event that we do as believers is come to worship on the Lord's day. The primary means of grace is the proclamation of the word. The primary means of grace is the proclamation of the word. Not the only means of grace, but the primary means of grace is the proclamation of the word. And we are told in the Bible that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. That certainly includes Lord's Day worship. And so we come to this. Um, How do you prepare uh, to come to worship on the Lord's Day? Do you make any preparation at all? Or are you simply uh, coming in, you sit here for an hour or so, and you leave? And that's it. I read a commentary not too long ago when I was preaching, uh, and Titus will be back there probably this next week, that the pastor, after he gets through preaching, needs to go in his closet and pray for his people, that the Word of God will be applied to them. You say the same thing for the elders. They need to go and pray for the people that are in church, in worship, that God may apply that word to their hearts and minds. It's a responsibility. But you have a responsibility as well to come and be prepared as you come in to worship. Does it delight you to come to worship? Do you delight in it? Well, if it wasn't for the preacher, I would delight in it. You should delight in it. As Charles said, even if you just hear the word of God read, 
That's delightful. And it should be delightful. Uh, when we come here, we recognize that we are coming as one body to sing hymns and to praise our God, the triune God of all creation. We're here to praise him. The angels are gathering around in here. You know that the angels are gathering around, listen to us sing praises to him. And Christ is here. He's watching us as we worship. And he knows what's in our hearts. Not simply what's coming from our lips, but he knows what's in our hearts as well. Well, if you don't like coming to worship and you can't wait to get home or get out of here, it might be that you're not converted and that you need to come to faith in Christ. It's something that Christ obviously gives us uh, a encouragement to do that if we fall into this category. And your temperament when you come into worship is very, very important. Your attitude, what's in your heart, is important to the Lord. When we come and we have prayed, we come and we have listened expectantly, and we come and we uh, take the word home with us, we can say, as David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. God accepts our worship. He delights in it. When we come before him in sincerity, he delights in our singing praises to him. The angels do that. The angels worship and adore God. We are following in the example of the angels when we come together and we worship. So there, the uh, great work of Christ on our behalf and the great benefit of Jesus. He's opened up the door to heaven and we can worship our great God today. Let's pray.